This is 89.9 WWNO. I'm Janae Pierre, and it's time for All Things New Orleans. On today's show, we'll share an event that has led some of the city's youth to dance for social change. Then we'll share another story from Bring Your Own, a live storytelling series. That's all coming up on All Things New Orleans, but first... Super Sunday is upon us. It's the day neighborhood-based groups of Mardi Gras Indians appear on the streets in elaborate hand-sewn suits of the finest beads and feathers, confronting other tribes in ritualistic encounters that involve chanting, dancing, and competitions for the prettiest suits. Joining me now to talk more about Super Sunday is Bertrand Butler with the Mardi Gras Indian Council. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. We appreciate it. What's the history of Super Sunday? When did it first begin? Well, we started in 1982 before it was uh, organized. But I would like to give you a little history of the festival. Okay. Uh, the, fest- the festival is held by the New Orleans Mighty Girl Indian Council in Rio to help celebrate the African-American New Orleans community, our art, music, and craft. This evening is held every third Sunday in March. This year is raining the third Sunday, so we rescheduled for the fourth Sunday. You asked me about the organization of it. The Mardi Gras Indian was in need for unity amongst each tribe. Each chief scattered throughout the city was invited to participate in a meeting that was held at E.L. Davis Center. We received 93% response in favor of organizing the New Orleans Mardi Gras Indian Council. So from that point on, we've been working in the community but we are highly known for Super Sunday and St. Joseph Night. Now, you mentioned St. Joseph Night. On Monday, thousands of folks came out to see the Mardi Gras Indians on that night. What's the connection between St. Joseph's Night and Super Sunday? Super Sunday is held every third Sunday in March. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew that St. Joseph Night is held March the 19th of each year. Sometimes it all pays with Super Sunday, which is great, as long as we can do the two events. So what can folks expect on uh, Super Sunday? Well, live music. majority of every Mardi Gras Indian tribe throughout the city. Edges, Lower Nine, Ninth Ward, Seventh, Sixth Ward, Uptown, Back of Town, Out Front of Town. Besides that, we have three jazz band, the High Day, the Stooges. We have YMO, Young Men's Olympics. We have uh, Ladybug Jumpers, Captain Charles. Then we have activity for the kids so that they won't get bold being with their mother. Say, Mama, come on, let me bring you, bring me over here by the kids' ride. This is a special day for neighborhood-based groups and those Indian tribes across the city. Let's talk about the rituals and the chants that are going to be heard this Sunday. Okay, I can make one statement out of that. It's about when the spirit hit them. That's when the right chanting going to come out. When the spirit hit them, that's when they're going to put on the dance. They're not going to put on the dance until the ones who know how the game goes. That's when they're going to affect them. And that's the spirit going to affect them. And they're going to have different dances according to the spirit. That was Bertrand Butler with the Mardi Gras Indian Council. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you big time. Look at the I told my daddy as a baby boy. 
Super Sunday is this weekend. The festivities kick off at 11 a.m. at A.L. Davis Park. The parade begins on Washington Avenue at 1 p.m. And we're back with more BYO. This story was told on January 18th at the St. Bernard Project and later produced by Maggie Herman. The theme of the evening was Pipe Dreams, Our Flooding Visions and Nightmares. And here, Joe Becker, former superintendent of the New Orleans Sewage and Water Board, tells of a drainage system at its limits and how he went from being the guy to that guy after the August 5th flood. This was Joe Becker's first public appearance since the summer 17 flooding press conferences. My name is Joe Becker, and I started the Sewage and Water Board uh, 30 years ago, May 27, 1987. At the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of engineering jobs out there. It was kind of a depressed period for the engineering economy, and there weren't a lot of jobs to be had. And so I felt lucky to be able to get that job. And to be frank with you, I thought I'd take that job when the economy got better. I'd have a little bit of experience, and I'd go out and I'd get myself a real engineering job. Okay, And I, I, start, I was lucky enough that I got to start supervising field crews. And so these are the guys that are going out and they're fixing pipes and stuff like that. And uh, so my very first day, I'm going out with the crew. They've got a, a customer that, that you know, the sewer doesn't work. And so they're going over there and they're fixing it and the sewer gets to work. And that's what I got to do for the first couple of years is I got to go out with the crews. I got to see a problem and I got to solve a problem that very day. And I really, I fell in love with that. Now, the, the economy got better. And I had an opportunity to go work for some other companies. I had some great experience because I was working in the field. I had a lot of great experience. I talked to some people that left work school about the same time as I did. And uh, they were sitting in a cubicle and they were checking other people's numbers. I had one friend of mine whose job, literally, after six months, of, uh, you know, she had an engineering degree, her job was to color. And, and I was like, you know what? I don't want any part of that. I'm doing something right here where I'm making a difference. Every day, I'm fixing people's sewer, I'm fixing people's water. This is a great job to have. And so as I go through time, um, instead of supervising a couple of crews, I'm supervising a department, all right? And after that, uh, they asked me to move to the design department. And so now I'm not working with crews anymore. Now I'm working with consultants. I'm working with contractors. I'm working with our neighbors, Jefferson Parish. I'm working with City Hall. And I'm getting to be the guy. All right, if you want us to get something done at the Sewage and Water Board, you need to talk to Joe because he's the guy. He's something to get something done. And I like being the guy. I mean, being the guy is pretty cool, all right? And so they had an opportunity, and so I was able to help people. That's really something that I really fell in love with, and it's really something that the Water Board staff, they really do a lot of that. One day after, uh, after Katrina, I got a phone call, and they said, look, the general superintendent is interested in retiring. We would like you to be the deputy general superintendent for a brief period of time, and then we want you to be the general superintendent. Are you interested in that? It's like, well, yeah. I, you know, how could you be much more than the guy there? That is definitely the guy. I would love to be the guy. All right? And so now, you know, so I was, a, I was the deputy general superintendent for about nine months. And then uh, in 2008, Mr. Sullivan retired, and I became the superintendent of the, uh, the general superintendent for the Sewage and Water Board. But, uh, and so I was the general superintendent for the last 10 years at the Sewage and Water Board, from uh, October of 2008, uh, 2008 to literally September, the end of September of 2017. I loved that job. I mean, obviously, the Sewage and Water Board 
is sewer and water, and that's a very important job in just about any city that has anything like that at all. But in addition to that, the city of New Orleans, we have a drainage problem. We have a drainage system. Most municipalities don't have any kind of a drainage system at all because they don't need anything. If it rains, it falls into a brook and it rolls out of town. We're downhill, so there's nowhere for it to go. So if anything happens, it has to be pumped. So this system is vital for the city of New Orleans. And if you want to do something, if you want to be the guy, you've got to have to know something about the drainage pumping system. The Sewage and Water Board has 158 pumps. 38 of those are dedicated to underpass drainage pumping stations. We have 11 underpasses, the Press Drive, Canal Street, all of those. Those 38 pumps have a combined capacity of probably about 300 cubic feet per second. That's small potatoes, okay? 300 cubic feet per second is probably about a little bit over 1,000 gallons a second. In addition to those 38 pumps, the Sewage and Water Board has 21 constant duty drainage pumps, primarily responsible for keeping the canal level during non-rain events. Because we're so low, there's always groundwater getting into those canals, and rather than turn on these big pumps, they turn on the, have the constant duty pumps that are much smaller, and they're much more designed uh, to handle the flow, and they keep the elevation in the cows level, primarily during uh, dry weather events. On a day like today, where we didn't get any rain, those would be running off and on over the course of the day. That leaves 99 pumps for drainage. The 99 drainage pumps have a combined capacity of 50,000 cubic feet per second. That's enough. I can fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool with all of those pumps. I could fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool in about a second and a half. I could fill up the Superdome to its roof in 42 minutes. The drainage system that the Sewage and Water Board has is massive. No metropolitan city in the world has a drainage system that even comes close to what the Sewage and Water Board has for the city of New Orleans. It's that big because it needs to be that big. With all of that, the drainage system can handle a half an inch of rain an hour. If we're going to get any more rain than that, then that's when it starts to back up, fill up the canals, starts to back up and fill up under the streets, and it starts to get deeper and deeper the, the more rain we get. Uh, in uh, August 5th, 9.43 inches at this drainage pumping station right here. 9.43 inches, nine and a half inches of rain in less than three hours. Okay? That means it's going to take 18 hours to pump out that much rain. And uh, after the, uh, the, the day of August 5th, on that particular day, it uh, wasn't scheduled, it wasn't forecasted to be a, a big rain event. There was a, a scattered afternoon thunderstorms is what was forecasted. I was at the water plant uh, in the afternoon talking to contractors that were doing emergency repair work inside of the turbines for us. I left at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, just when it started raining. And I was thinking, man, I'm glad that I'm getting home right before it starts raining. I got home, and in my neighborhood, it started raining harder. What I do, when it's raining really hard and I happen to be home, is I get my raincoat on, I get my shovel, and I go out and I clean off the catch basins in front of the areas because the catch basins bring all that, the water brings all that debris in front of the catch basins and then they can't, uh, can't get out. So I'm, you know, I got my boots on and I'm walking through the neighborhood and I'm cleaning out catch basins. Got my radio with me and I get a phone call saying, hey, it's getting really bad in a lot of other places also. So that's when I got home and I started heading out, uh, checking drainage pumping stations and meeting with other people. I didn't get home until uh, Sunday night. So I was at work overnight with the stations and then uh, City Hall had some requests and so I was over at City Hall and, uh, and, and went from there. Uh, I answered as many questions as I could. You know, we, had, we went to the media. We had a media event on, I think, that Monday and I answered a lot of questions because I needed to be there because I was the guy, right? I needed to be able to answer the questions. And we, had the, uh, we had a city council meeting on, on August 8th and at that meeting is when I figured out that I was going to be that guy. They needed somebody to blame, and that's, that's what happened. And uh, so that's something that I'm still struggling with today, to be honest with you, is uh, 
is I'm that guy. And uh, just two weeks ago, I was out, uh, I was walking on Canal Street, and somebody stopped me and said, hey, I'm Joe Becker. I said, yes, I am. I said, my car flooded on August 5th. Thanks a lot. I said, well, I'm that guy. So that's, uh, this, is, this is a seven-minute story that doesn't have an end. I'm going to be that guy for a long time until, until, until the Internet stops carrying that. <laughs> And uh, so that's just something that I'm going to have to live with, and, and I'm going to be that guy, and hopefully sooner or later, somewhere, I'll get to be the guy again. Thank you very much. That BYO was in partnership with IC Change and the Trust for Public Land. The next Bring Your Own event is happening tomorrow night in the Sculpture Garden in City Park, and it's in partnership with NOMA and their A Queen Within exhibition. Doors at 6, stories at 7. More information at bringyourownstories.com. Some of New Orleans high school students are dancing for social change. You heard right. Dancing Grounds presents the third annual Dance for Social Change Youth Art and Leadership Festival this weekend. Here to tell us more about the two-day festival is Executive Director Laura Stein and student Akilah Sherman. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Tell us about Dancing Grounds. I hear it's not your average dancing studio. So Dancing Grounds is not your average studio for a few reasons. So first, we're a nonprofit, um, and our mission is to bring high-quality and accessible dance education to people of all ages in New Orleans. So we have Saturday summer and in-school programming for kids, and then we also have the most comprehensive adult education program in the city with 25 classes per week um, for beginners through advanced dancers at a few different locations. And so the whole vibe is different from your typical dance studio in terms of um, not being so heavily focused on technique and looking, trying to strive for perfection and um, having this this model body and all those things that we typically think about when we think about being in a dance class. It's really about creating a warm and welcoming environment for people to move and express themselves and get all the physical and mental benefits of dancing. So really thinking about dance as a tool for creativity, for mind-body connection, and particularly with our young people, um, how can we encourage students to create their own choreography, to see themselves as young artists, and to understand the way that they can use their art form as a tool for social justice and advocacy. And Akila, you're one of those young artists. Let's talk about some of the benefits of dance for a community. I'll start with you, Akila. Well, benefits of dance for the community would definitely be a way for people to get out certain emotions. Like say they're holding something and they just need a break so they can go, ah, in the dance studio and dance out all the emotions and have fun. Also, it's a way to get people to bond with each other. Because mm-hmm. say for me, I don't get to see some of my friends very often. So when I go there, it's like, oh, hey, and I get to have a good time with them and kind of share good energy and have a good frequency as we're dancing, things like that. And to have a very welcoming place. I know some people don't have stuff to do during the day, 
So they come to Dancing Grounds, and it's so welcoming that they feel like they're at home. And two, because Dancing Grounds is in an old house, and so it really does feel like a home for us in our community. We always refer to it as a family. And I think that's one of the things that's a huge benefit to what we're doing is that it's a common ground for people to bond over their love of dance and music. So, you know, it's very easy, especially in the current political climate today when there's so much talk about differences and what divides us, which are things we need to be talking about and also talking about what can bring us together. And so our community is you know, filled with transplants like me, New Orleans natives, young people, um, elders in the dance community who've been teaching in the city for 50 years. I mean, it really is such a broad spectrum of people who are all able to come together and move. And you're moving in different ways. And that's what's so cool about Dancing Grounds. In fact, this weekend, you guys will present the third annual Dance for Social Change. But before we talk about this year's theme, let's talk about the impact the previous festivals have made on youth in the community. So the past two years, the idea was really... um how can we work with teenagers on creating their own choreography around a social justice theme? Um, The past two years, the students have selected the themes. And so one year it was called Raising Student Voices, and it was focused on the school-to-prison pipeline and the ways that different school environments can contribute to that pipeline and reflecting back to educators and administrators how their disciplinary practices in school feel for students. And it was so powerful because we had educators in the room who were able to kind of have a mirror back on themselves and and see um, the students' experience through the students' eyes in a way that's not um, through words. So there's just this deep level of truth that comes out when you're watching someone dance non-verbally or there's spoken word and it's through a performance. It's a really powerful medium. So that that was a huge impact that first year is um, we really targeted bringing school educators to that event so that they could think and reflect on that. And then last year, we partnered with the Music Box Village and the kids selected the theme Women's Rights and Gender Justice. Um, that was largely inspired by what was going on before the election. Mm-hmm. And so that was really on their minds. And it was different vignettes in the music box houses reflecting on how women's rights and gender dynamics show up, particularly in their interpersonal relationships as teenagers. So, Akila, this year's theme is breaking through the stigma of mental health. Was this topic chosen by you and your peers? Yes, actually it was because every year we get to decide over a few topics that we come up with and a few ideas of our overseers. And basically, whichever one touches the heart most is the one that we choose. And what are you guys thinking and saying about the stigma of mental health? What are your big concerns? Well, the biggest concern is putting each other down and not supporting each other no matter what we're going through. Because honestly, if we don't stick together and have each other's backs, we all end up going down on the same boat. So we want to find a way to change that and to make getting through the stigmas of mental health a positive thing and not necessarily something we look at and say, oh, something's wrong with that person or, oh, she or he is crazy. We want to be like, okay, they're having a little problem right now. Let's help them out. Let's show them that there are other ways to get through things. And then another way is dancing, which is a really, really big help for all of us in dance and social change. So basically the whole, the whole of everything would have to be creating a positive note 
for people who are going through things. Now, Dance for Social Change, this festival is a two-day event. Tell us what's happening. Walk us through each day. The first day, we're having a day of action, which is basically creating awareness for it and having other people come and join us for, like, classes or jam sessions, things like that. And then the second day would be more of us showcasing how we took the processes that we showed the first day and turned it into a big show for everybody to watch. And what can folks expect in that big show? Um, definitely lots of emotion. I don't want to spoil it. Lots of dancing, a little bit of acting, and a lot of grooving and movement. And Laura, where is this year's event taking place? So the Day of Action on March 24th is going to be along the St. Claude Corridor. Uh, The center of activities will be in the backyard of Arise Academy. We're going to have 11 different youth groups performing, food trucks, a bounce house, um, jam sessions led by the kids, resource tables, uh, the National Alliance for Mental Illness illness will have a big table with resources and a bunch of other community organizations like the People's Assembly about different advocacy initiatives that are happening in the city. Um, And then over at Dancing Grounds, which is a half a block away from there, we'll have free classes like an open house all day. Um, There'll be an all ages tap class jam. And then you can sample stuff that we offer throughout the week. At the Stalling Center too, there's going to be a free hip hop class. And then other businesses are signing on to participate, too. So the idea is that we're planting the seeds for a bigger festival that could go farther along St. Claude Avenue. On Sunday, March 25th, we're going to be at the Contemporary Arts Center. And there's a 2 o'clock and a 4 o'clock show, followed by an audience discussion. The whole week prior, we're also having $5 classes for our adult programs across the city. Um, And our summer camp registration for ages 8 through 12 is also opening that week. So there's a lot to do. There's so many different ways to get involved with this event. Um, So I know it's a very busy weekend in the city. So you don't have to come to everything. Come stop by, you know, take a little class, watch a performance. The Sunday show is going to be really, really special. The kids also um, did a five-hour intensive with Urban Bushwoman while they were in town Mm -hmm. and performing at the CAC. And so their creative process is just exploded this year <laughs> from working with them and yeah. um, and getting their ideas and, and feedback on their work. So um, NOCA students will also be opening the show for the Dancing Around students um, with another original piece by Keisha McKee of KM Dance Project. And um, if you come to the show on Sunday, you will get a free T-shirt. All right. That was Laura Stein, Executive Director at Dancing Grounds, and student Akilah Sherman. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. The Dance for Social Change Youth Arts and Leadership Festival takes place March 24th through 25th, and all events are free and open to the public for people of all ages. To learn more, visit dancinggrounds.org. You depend on New Orleans Public Radio, and we depend on you. Hey, this is WWNO Coastal Reporter Travis Lux. When you do your part to support great programs on WWNO, we think that's something worth celebrating. That's why we began MemberFest, to celebrate you, the most important source of support for this radio station. We couldn't do it without you. Give online at wwno.org donate, and thank you.
And that's it for this week's edition of All Things New Orleans. I'm Janae Pierre. Visit our website to check out previous shows and be sure to catch us next week right here on 89.9 WWNO New Orleans and 90.5 KTLN Thibodeau Homa. Happy Member Fest and thanks for joining us.